You know, it's hard to believe that it's coming up on two years in February. Things are different now than they were. That's Dr. David Zass, president of Duke Raleigh Hospital. This conversation was recorded last October, talking about events that started back in February 2017. Before then, Dave's life was pretty busy. But there was something that made you never question your own mortality. There's a certain amount of being a physician, you're busy, you've got kids, you got work, you're invincible. The thought of getting sick, it, it was, was hard to even imagine that as a possibility. Obviously, getting diagnosed with leukemia back on Valentine's Day of 2017 sort of shatters that myth that you're invincible and makes you question a lot of things that you never thought of. I would have said prior to that day, right, you never thought about not seeing your kids grow up. You never thought about what all those things would mean. This is Voices of Duke Health. I'm Karishma Sriram. Today, how a physician learned how to be a patient. Dr. Zoss was joined by the other Dr. Zoss, his wife, Amy. Amy's the program director for the Internal Medicine Residency. I asked them to tell me a little bit about what their lives are like before leukemia. Zero to 60 all the time. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, I thought you were going to go all the way back to the point of uh, when we met in med school and you were chasing me. I wasn't chasing oh, you. please tell no, us. No, no, no. That, yeah, that's his version of the story. <laughs> the real story is that we were very good friends in med school, um, and he asked me to go out to dinner, and I didn't realize it was a date, and it turned out it was a date. So during during dinner, at some point, he had, like, his wine glass. I think like, it was after the first bottle. Yeah, in front of his face, and he, like, said something, like, about, like, what do you think about us being more than friends? And I was like, what? What? <laughs> <laughs> but, but everyone in our whole med school class knew it was a date. I you set him up with one, one of my best friends, like, I mean, like, outside of med school friend. So, so we started dating after that. Um, got married fourth year of med school. Couples match for residency, or chief residents at the same time. Couples match for fellowship. Uh, I always say I've was I've ridden coattails uh, a long way and uh, knew that I could always come in second or third in the class, but always behind her. But it no. was uh, it's good to have coattails. Not true, but um, <laughs> you know, we have been at Duke since the early 2000s. Um, had our kids here. Their kids, Jake and Jonah, are now 15 and 13. So for the Zoss family, life was full steam ahead. But in January 2017, Dave started noticing things were a bit off. You know, I actually remember the first uh, phone call to you. So uh, I was skiing Park City mm -hmm. with some high school and college friends and, and boys, boys trip. Uh, so everybody had their kids. And I'm still competitive enough. I have to prove that I can outski my teenagers. Um, but I remember calling home and I said, I got the flu. I just, you know, I had chills and I wasn't feeling well. And, of course, calling the ID doc, you're like, no, you don't have the flu. You're skiing at 14,000 feet and you've been going all day. You don't have the flu. And uh, I was convinced that it was, you know, it's winter. It's respiratory viruses. I've always been a person that when I get a cold, it stays forever. 
And that's really all that it seemed that it was, was just a cold that I couldn't shake. But over the next four weeks, there were some other troubling signs. I kept trying to run, and I kept getting frustrated that I couldn't run and couldn't get myself in shape and would try to work out harder, but it was, uh, it just wasn't my normal endurance. And then I remembered I had a skin rash. I remember showing you one morning and I'd asked if you'd changed uh, soap or something in the laundry or what else was bothering my skin because I had this skin rash that was different and new and didn't really know what it was. But it wasn't until that second week of February that I think we both knew something was wrong more than that. I don't even think I told you that my gums, like, I hate flossing. She knows I hate flossing. I know I hate teeth in general. Um, and I started flossing because my gums were bothering me enough. I'm convinced I would have figured it out if you would have just told me that. And I remember, um, actually, the night that I really knew something was wrong, I carried a, uh, I don't know if I told you this one, I think a laundry upstairs to Jonah's room. You carried laundry upstairs? No way. <laughs> and I remember uh, Jonah said, Dad, you're really short of breath. And I said, God, that's really strange for walking one flight of stairs carrying a full laundry basket. Why am I so visibly short of breath? And the next day I saw one of our cardiologists, Mark Leif in Raleigh, and I, and I sort of described to him what I was feeling like. And like any good cardiologist, of course, it had to be my heart. So he convinced me I needed a stress test. So Dave got his stress test, and it was totally normal. So was his chest x-ray. But... He also thought to check his complete blood count. And I said, and by the way, just draw a CBC for me and let's see what my blood counts and see if I'm anemic or, or anything else that could explain it. And that was a Friday. Yeah. Um, we got the chest x-ray back in my chart and it was normal. And the lab hadn't been released. So, you know, if you have a lab drawn, your doctor has to release it so you can see it in my chart. And... Clearly, we, we know ways around this, but you're not supposed to do that. And we're like, no, we're not going to look. We're going to do this the right way. We're not going to get fired for, like, looking in our own chart. You know, we're going to just wait till he releases it. We're not going to bother him on a weekend. So he released it on Monday. Yeah. It was Monday the 13th. And I remember I, t I texted you to one-line phrase, and I said, I need a bone marrow biopsy. And with, like, a screenshot of, like, these terrible terrible labs and so I was in my office upstairs when I got the text and so I you texted back OMG OMG I still remember it the Zasas jumped into action Amy got in touch with Dr. Lou Deal a leukemia specialist and he agreed to see Dave the next day until then it was back to their unrelenting schedules and you had to like go give a talk that night at like the opening of the cancer center or something yeah, like at the absolutely ironically terrible so i remember so. the next day actually um you told me to stay home from work and i said no i'm gonna go to work uh, we did some town halls and acted like nothing was in dr deal put us on at the end of the day yeah we were supposed to go see chris, some chris, chris rock, rock i wanted to go see chris rock after the doctor's visit and you wouldn't let me i said we can get diagnosed with leukemia because <laughs> we knew it was leukemia at that point yeah uh and then but we already bought the Chris Rock tickets. I said, we might as well go see the concert. But no. you yeah. weren't going to let me go see Chris Rock after that. So the Zasas went to their appointment, and the diagnosis was what they feared. But remember, they have two sons who were in the fifth and seventh grades at the time. And they realized they couldn't tell them. Not yet. 
Our older son was doing the middle school trip to D.C. the next morning. So there was two reasons to keep it from him. One is we had no idea that moment. How do you tell a teenager? What do you say? And two, you couldn't tell him and then send him to D.C. for three days. So that night, trying to get them to bed, trying to act normal when you have this in the back of your mind um, was probably one of the hardest moments of all of it because you're sitting there trying to say, God, I, I want to be honest with my kids. I don't want to be uh, keeping things from them, but I don't know what to say, and I haven't had a chance to think about it, and he's all excited for this D.C. trip that I want him to go on with his friends the next day and like once you know you know like up until you know you're just you know normal well we're ne- we were never normal but you know like normal <laughs> family you know normal seventh grader you know normal fifth grader whatever and like as soon as you know you're like not that person anymore it's like if he has three more days to be normal like who really cares you know this is going to be fine oh it was uh we got him to bed early and like under the guise of getting up at four in the morning yes. to like drive to DC um, or and the younger ones always easy to get to bed early. Um, <laughs> and you just, I just remember trying to hold back tears while you're putting them to sleep. Um, and just trying to act like it's any other night. And then I remember going back to the couch and it was, uh, I couldn't read on it at all. I remember looking at one article and I got like a paragraph into it. You start looking at like a survival curve and others and you're like, this is not productive. So with a few exceptions where I've actually read on things and every time I do, I regret it over the last two years, I've almost read nothing. And every time that I do, she yells at me because it makes you emotional and not necessarily rational because... You can't read an article from 1990. (laughs) So for Dave... Reading articles was more harmful than helpful, and it was bigger than that. At that moment, he didn't want to be a physician. He just wanted to be a patient. I think it's a coping skill, a little bit. One is I think you have to have trust in who's caring for you, and that's both your caregiver as well as your physicians and others. And we talk a lot about, you know, we want patients to make informed decisions. In hindsight, being the patient, I'm not sure I would ever use that language again. We want patients to have trust and we want patients to be educated. But I wanted to be led. I didn't want to question and figure out what was right. I wanted someone to be able to tell me here's what you should do and here's why and yeah I was educated about it but I was much more focused on all the other components of life than trying to question and figure out you know was there a different treatment I should be doing um, right that's where I, I needed at least personally to just have faith that they were going to find the best options for me The morning after Dave got his diagnosis, Jake left for his trip to D.C., a no-phones-allowed trip, and Jonah was off to school. Dave and Amy hadn't broken the news yet to either son. That same morning, Dave was admitted to Duke Hospital, and their plan was to bring Jonah to the hospital after school. And he tells the story pretty well of being 
realizing he wasn't going home when he left school. But coming to mom's work isn't that strange or abnormal. But coming here to the hospital and then being told he was going to see me. And I think uh, he could see in your face how emotional you were and that something was wrong. It was a hard sentence to get through, hard conversation. Um, and, and I think we both were breaking up a lot. What he laughs at us for is at the time is when we described to him, you know, dad has leukemia and he could see how upset we both were, but he had no idea what leukemia was. Oh. Um, and it was only later when we sort of started using the word cancer and others. But I think we forget a little bit, especially both being physicians, right, that uh, you talk about using plain language, plain language for a fifth grader. It's not leukemia. Uh, it's not leukemia. Meanwhile, Amy got a call from Jake's teachers, who were with him on the trip to D.C., and they said, Jake has a fever to 102. Can you come get him? Can you come get him? And I was like, well... Let me tell you what's going on. They're like, we'll keep him, we'll load him up with ibuprofen and don't worry about a thing. By this point, Amy and Dave were in Baltimore. They had managed to get Dave in a clinical trial at Johns Hopkins. At the end of Jake's school trip, a family friend offered to bring him up to Baltimore. And Jake? He still didn't know anything. When his ride got to the hospital, Amy went down to get him. So kind of extract a sleeping Jake from the car, and he kind of is like, wait, where are we? Why are, where, what's going on? And so then by that point, we knew that the goal for Dave was to get a transplant, a bone marrow transplant, and that the protocol was what's called a haplow transplant, which is like a half match, which is usually, you know, if you're a kid, it's your parent. If you're a parent, it's it's generally your kid. And so what had transpired in like those past 48 hours was that this was what Dave needed. And so by that point, we knew that Jake was going to, you know, be the bone marrow donor. I kind of pitched it to him about, you know, how sick Dave was. But in all of that, you know, you will get to be the hero. So he's like, okay, let's go. You know, like, what do I do? What do I do? Let's go get my blood drawn. Let's go. How do I do this? So Jake got to go see his dad. And then he got a lot of blood tests done. I mean, it's definitely, there's nothing easy about it. But that piece of it made that part of it a little bit easier because in all of these things, it's it's really good to have a task to do. So that got to pivot some of the moment from what's going to happen to what is a plan to sort of fix things that are going on. So having a plan was helpful for Amy. What wasn't was the uncertainty. You know, the hallmark of a an internist, you've got to care, you've got to be curious, you've got to, you know, always want to know why, and you have to have comfort with the fact that you're never really going to know what's going to happen or what the the right answer is. And, you know, I'm pretty decent at being a doctor most of the time, and I thought that I was comfortable with uncertainty, but I think it's that when it's your own uncertainty, it's weird. I think I'm a better person. I think Dave will say he's a better person for having this happen. 
all things being equal again would be okay without <laughs> without that that personal growth but we got so much out of all of this too and kind of still do and part of that is a much deeper appreciation for her duke community one of the many things that i say about duke people at duke really do care about each other and that it's a really wonderful community people are very generous with their time they're very collaborative you know they want to know you as a person but to know that and then to actually see it in action are really quite different and his team completely stepped up stepped in and my team here and everyone just really you know like okay we're gonna figure this out and I wasn't on leave I got to have the luxury of being here part of the time and being in Baltimore part of the time and everyone around just did so much more when I couldn't do you know we kind of figured out what I could do and what I couldn't do and you know I can't imagine not being here um just the you know the way that people stepped up and all of our friends and friends of friends and that kind of thing it was we couldn't have done it without that Dave's treatment was successful. After a few months of chemo and a bone marrow transplant thanks to his son, he went back to work in the summer of 2017. It hasn't been all smooth sailing though, but most importantly, Dave is now healthy and cancer free. I probably always imagined other patients when they were sick or worried about themselves. But being the patient going through it, there's actually very little time that you actually worry about yourself, or at least from my experience going through with it. You worry a lot about others around you. Um, you worry a lot, and we've talked a lot about, you know, kids or, or worrying about Amy and others. And But there was very little concern of, you know, what does that mean for me? It made it easier to say, you know, how do you worry about what's next? Well, you worry about what you can control, right? Well, how am I going to keep myself in shape? How am I going to keep my weight on? How am I going to talk to the kids and try to explain to them what's going on? But you're much more externally worried about those around you and other things than the impact on yourself as the patient. Someone asked me, were you afraid you were going to die? And I said, you know, I don't actually ever remember having that thought. What kept me up at night more was uh, as our Jonah's having his bar mitzvah coming up here in December, right? You'd sit in there saying, all right, we just had our older son's bar mitzvah. Am I going to live to see our younger son's bar mitzvah? Are you going to live to see them get through high school and, and college? It wasn't like a internal fear of, oh, no, what's going to happen to me? And I'm not sure I ever would have expected that so much of what kept me up at night was worried about other people more so than myself. Thank you to Dr. Zoss and Dr. Zoss for sharing their story. To learn more about cancer care, research, and the clinical trials at Duke, visit DukeCancerInstitute.org. 
If you like what you just heard, we hope it'll spur your own conversations. Ask a friend what inspires them or what they're grateful for. And let us know if you would like to record a conversation in our listening booth. Visit www.listeningbooth.info to learn more. Voices of Duke Health was created by Anton Zeiker and Jonathan Bay. The show is produced by Susanna Robertson. Theme music was composed by William Dawson, musician-in-residence at Duke University Hospital, and produced, arranged, performed, and recorded by Mark Simonson and Jack Fleischman. Additional music for this episode is by Blue Dot Sessions. And special thanks to Duke Institute for Health Innovation for making this podcast possible.